Hello and welcome to the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women a voice. We bring you real life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes technical expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava. This podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. Joining me on the podcast this week is Hazel Lim, a leading advocate in the campaign against the stigma associated with autism, with a focus on the cultural stigma within the Chinese community in the UK. Living as a late discovered autistic minority in the UK, Hazel understands the struggles. She moved with her husband and three children to Swansea to study for a master's in autism and related conditions at Swansea University and then decided to make Wales a permanent home. Hazel founded the Chinese Autism Support Group in 2016 when she realised there was no support available, even nationally, for Chinese families. Since then, Hazel has worked tirelessly to engage with this vulnerable group of people who were almost hiding themselves away due to the language barriers and the cultural stigma associated with autism. And the momentum has led Hazel to set up the Chinese Autism Community Interest Company to better support all Chinese families in need across the UK. Hazel was recently awarded the UK Chinese Woman of the Year Volunteering Category Award and she won the National Autistic Society Autistic Professional Award in 2020. And Hazel comes on the podcast today to shine a light on her own late discovery story, a story she shares for the first time since discovering her own neurodivergence in her early 40s. It's Catherine and Katie here, and we need your help and we need your support. If you love the Late Discovered Club, you would be massively supporting the work that we do in helping to deconstruct stereotypes and give the next generation visibility of autistic women. And you can show your support and your help in three ways. Number one, become a community member or a community champion. Number two, you could buy us a coffee. And number three, you could rate and review the podcast or the episodes that you're enjoying. And this is really important that we get that visibility that the people who need to find us are able to find us. And by you rating and reviewing the show, it helps to give us that visibility. And keep listening. We've got many more stories and many more episodes to come. Welcome to the show, Hazel. Um, I feel really honoured to have you here with me today sharing your story because you are a busy woman who is very clearly and so passionately on a mission. So thank you for taking the time to, to come on the show. And you are a leading advocate for others. You're leading in the campaign against the stigma associated with autism with a focus specifically on the cultural stigma within the Chinese community in the UK. And you've been recognised for the work that you do, having recently been awarded the UK Chinese Woman of the Year in the volunteering category. So you're on a mission to bring change to Chinese minorities in the UK. And I want to explore the work that you're doing and the change that you want to see. But I'd really like to start, Hazel, by exploring your own light bulb moment in discovering that you're autistic. So where and how did your autistic discovery begin? Hello, Katrin. Thank you for having me. So as for me, I think this is the very first time I'm being asked a question and openly talk about it in the public about my own diagnosis. The very first time. So you've been doing all this work and it's the first time anybody's ever asked you that question. About my own. So people have been asking me about, you know, what's your exploration about autism? but not a question about your autism. 
Mm. So I've been talking it as in the from the perspective of uh, as a mother, as a as an advocate. But you know, speaking for myself, this is the first time that I openly talk about it in the public. Okay, so, so this is a big deal today. Then doing this, <laughs> um, I because I had my diagnosis at the age of forty four. And by the time I was diagnosed, actually, I have already had a master's degree in autism and related condition. And I have been working as an autism specialist for years. I have also have compiled a, a English and Chinese bilingual autism booklet. And I managed several autism advocacy projects. I have a son that's autistic. And I've been through the whole pathway and process that for my husband to um, have his diagnosis. And I've been supporting hundreds of people and families. I deliver trainings and workshops. But it's a bit ironic, really, because that with all my knowledge and expertise in autism, it took me a long time mm. to start exploring my own potential neurodivergence. So um, the first time the idea that I could be autistic occurred to me at that time, because I was doing so much research, I was doing, you know, there was a lot of information there and that gave me actually space to start thinking because there's a lot of things that I feel I fit into those paper, you know, that, that sounds like me. Mm. However, you know, at the time I got a bit distracted because I got distracted by pursuing my own ADHD diagnosis instead because it had more obvious intent in my life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it, it's just very obvious. And I get my diagnosis ADHD quite, quite, quite quickly soon after that. And also I was detracted because I started to um, help my husband to get his diagnosis as well, who was very obviously autistic to me after then we get to know more and more in depth about the neurodivergence. So, and also as a mother of three with um, three special needs children, I have a lot on my plate with their additional hospital appointments, school appointments, and their different interests that I want to support them with. And also, like you mentioned earlier, that, you know, I, I never keep myself not busy. In that, in addition to that, I set up a Chinese autism support group, um, which then support like hundreds of people in there with complex backgrounds. Because this family, they not only have limited understanding about autism and neurodivergence, but they also face the stigma in our culture, which is really, really difficult to battle. As well as the additional barriers they have, such as language barriers, their immigration status, which, you know, as a, as a local British people, that's something that you probably never um, have to experience those on top of our daily life with the special needs children at home. So with all these things going on, I just simply did not have enough space to look into my own autism for a long time. And mm. I, I basically just forgot about it. Also, I think I think because I seem as a capable woman, you know, I know how to apply my logical, uh, the systemizing nature to the lifelong study of people. I just got on with my life. I just need to remember to wear different masks at different times, you see. Yeah. And did you, so when you were doing your master's then, because I know I had that moment doing my psych master's, there was all of this, all of this information from so many different sources coming in of going through assessments for other people, learning more about autism, neurodiversity, neurodivergence, um, hearing more stories. It isn't just one light bulb moment, is it? it? It's like a series of things that happen and a series of information and then all of a sudden, one day, it, it hits you with, well, this is me. This is this mirror that all of these things in my life are holding up to me, all of these people I'm supporting. And yet I don't see that in myself. And it sounds like for you, that was a very similar experience. So even me asking about your light bulb moment, it's very much about everybody else in your life that you're supporting at this time. And, and yours comes as yours almost comes as an afterthought, doesn't it? Of, well... It is though, it is though, but because that we, we we lead such busy lives, isn't it? Sometimes we are the last person that we would think about. We are the last person that we actually give time and 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 care to us. So I remember then in 
it was until very later. So in March 2020, I went to uh, Birmingham to attend an autism conference. And I took that opportunity to sit in a few sessions that talks about female and girls' autism. And in the same day, in the evening, I attended um, an Autism Professional Award Ceremony that is hosted by the National Autistic Society because I was shortlisted for, so I was there. And that is where I met Dr. Katrina Stilwart. Um, she was one of the frontline advocates for women and autism. Yeah. She sat next to me and instinctively, I told her that, Katrina, I think I was autistic <laughs> straight away. And that was the first proper conversation that I have with someone privately about it. Yeah. So on the journey home the next day, I reflected on what I have heard at the conference and seeing the way in which people navigated the world differently than me and made me curious. However, as soon as I got back to my real life, the busy pace of life took over like usual, you know, and I lost mm. the time and space for myself again. But this this was the March 2020 that we are talking about, okay? Yeah. Long story short, if you remember that time. Yeah, well, pandemic. we went into we went into lockdown. Yes. It was the start of, it. of the pandemic, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? The pandemic hit, and with the lockdown, the time froze. And I suddenly had the time that I never had before again to read and think. So that really ties in well because I've just been to a few conferences that, you know, I can reflect. And with my ADHD, I, you know, then I got excited. I really I got really excited. And then I ended up submitting a self-referral form. In March 2020, I submitted for a self-autism assessment to the integrated service in my area of Wales. And mm. that is how I finally started exploring my own autism. And I'm interested in, in the point then at your that, that you did a self-referral, because this, again, this is different across the UK for different areas. Some some services you can self-refer into, some you can't. You are dependent on a GP making a referral for you. And so we know that there are so many barriers for women, but we also know that there are additional layers of barriers for minority groups to access that diagnosis. And, and this has come up on so many of the conversations that we've had on the podcast so far in season one. And some of those barriers for diagnosis and support come down to things like language barriers to cultural sensitivity to understanding I mean there's a whole host of things isn't there did you experience any barriers Hazel in terms of accessing a diagnosis at the point that you made that self-referral then and you went into that system in terms of barrier not so much on me because I have always been the one that, you know, trying to break down barriers for other people, isn't it? So I kind of understand what are the barriers that is, is there for other people. So I understand how to solve them. So for me, they wasn't such a barrier to myself. What I was lacking is the courage, I think. It was the courage that to make that step forward because doing things for other people for me is easier. It's easier, and if there's any problem, I'll be the first person that to the front that to wanted to solve it for other people. But when it come to myself, you know, sometimes it just need that courage. So I I was really glad that you know, I I I I make that step because then that also um start the self discovery discovery journey and and that courage then to get to that point of making a referral. And this is the bit again, isn't it, where um, it's so dependent on where you live. It's so dependent on who you refer into. Because I went through a parallel process to you in in around that time in the pandemic of, you know, going to my GP and saying, I'm definitely autistic. I'm definitely ADHD. Please send me for an assessment. And I literally got a text message back from my GP surgery saying um, you don't meet the criteria for referral in this area. That was like, well, I've had the courage to, you know, you, like you're talking, you support all of these other people. And I've had the courage to say, actually, I've I've discovered this about myself and I need some help. And at the point that you reach out for that help, you're shut down. And, and I found that 
really invalidating um, back in 2020 to experience that. It is. It is. And I, uh, to be honest, out there, there are a lot of professionals. They have no clue. They have no clue. So because you mentioned about the barriers, because I I have been helping a lot of people to get their diagnosis. That's why I know. But I can imagine anyone, if they want to have that step forward to have self-refer themselves, where do they go? You know, it's, it's really, really daunting because you don't know where to go. And if you finally make that step forward and that person actually tell you that, oh, you are not meeting the criteria like what you have experienced, I think it's so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is very wrong. So I think in, in South of Wales, the way I am, that uh, we have been battling this for a long time. So I have got my other professional friends and work quite closely together. So with this integrated service that um, it was only set up not long ago, so that allowed only adults, not children. Children, they are still on the pathway where it's still very difficult because you have to go through schools where teachers has got no clue. You know, we have been having that battle every day. However, for adult services, we can do self-referral. We can have professional referral and self-referral, which makes it so much easier because mm. we are an adult ourselves, isn't it? Why can't we speak for ourselves? Yeah. I know. And and that's the thing, isn't it? It doesn't even get into the whole thing about all of these additional layers that we're talking about, about minority groups. And, I, you know, I'm I'm a white woman. I don't have those additional barriers, those additional layers. So if you are a minority group in the UK and you do go to your GP, all of those things that we've just talked about, you know, the language barriers, the cultural sensitivity, the understanding, the not seeing autism in in your culture or um you know in who you are these these create these barriers don't they and so you didn't have those barriers and you've obviously been working as you say to create those more integrated services in south wales but i'm interested then from from the point of of self-referral how has your journey been to this new found knowledge how how is autism viewed in Chinese culture and how have you found self-disclosure within the cultural context in in your own world Hazel in in the world of work within the Chinese community within friends family as a mother I know there's a lot of there's a lot of questions there so I'll go back to the first one what's (laughs) what's your journey to this newfound knowledge been like for you I would say um, that I am still very much on my self-discovery journey, but I have made a lot of progress in understand my, understanding my own need and preference. It was easier when I do this with together with my own immediate family, with my three neurodivergence children and my neurodivergence husband. So it was much easier. But in terms of in the Chinese community, that was something that is much harder. As far as self-disclosure goes, so there has been a mixed bag, really, because, you know, I it, it, it's been incredibly validating and empowering to be able to share my experience with someone close, um, especially my family and friends, so that they can understand me better. But like I mentioned earlier, in the other hand, because there was still such a strong stigma and misunderstanding around autism, especially in the community that I'm part of, such as the Chinese community and the church communities. So it's been very, very difficult. In Chinese culture, the understanding of autism is like the early days of Western culture. So you probably, if you speak to, I, I, I know a lot of English friends were telling me, you know, maybe like 30, 40 years ago, you know, when I share with them about currently how the Chinese people are seeing autism, they say it's probably the same as the Western culture, like, you know, quite a few decades ago. Mm. And also on top of that, you know, the Chinese culture, I think is really um, where the root of the problem is because our language creates a cultural perception that autism is a disease the term is just being translated into a very bad term and some people still think it is contagious because it is so rarely talked about so it has become a taboo in the Chinese um, culture for a you know for a long history so as a advocates myself autism advocates in the Chinese community even before my own diagnosis 
I have also faced some negative reaction and pushback. And also people, they don't even like me to talk about it. They feel like I'm bringing the shame topic onto the table. Yeah. Oh, so it must be really, really difficult then to 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 set up an organization then in the is. UK where you are centering this narrative, where you're centering people's stories, where you're providing that support and advocacy to have that pushback from your own community of, of wanting to silence you, of wanting to say to you, this is not something we should be talking about. It, it creates a sense of, of what, of shame, of. It, it, it does. It does. So I think if I have not turned all those into a strength, then, you know, I'm not where I am today. Yeah. Talk, talking about my own self-disclosure, it, it's, it's certainly a, a huge challenge and needs a lot of courage. So I, I know I'm not ready um, to talk about it yet when I'm with second group of people, but I'm certainly, you know, ready when, you know, I, I know where some other places is more open and um, are willing to, to talk about it. From the time I submitted the self-referral, I, I actually did not really thought about it anymore. Um, I just get on with the busy life until the last August, last year, August, when I got my diagnosis. So I think that the both autism community and the Chinese community, I really think that, you know, we need role models. We need role models. We need to be not ashamed of who we are. We, in fact, we need to celebrate who we are. So I am really working my way towards being more open about my diagnosis as experience. But sometimes it just needs to be with a bit more wisdom. When is the right time to talk about it? And 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 because at the end of the day, we want a positive response and we want people to be able to know what it is actually, but not to bring more negative um perception into autism, isn't it? Yeah. And and having those role models of people who look like you, of people who you can relate to, that relatability matters, doesn't it? But with that, with being a role model, with being the person who's saying, I want to deconstruct this narrative, it brings, as you say, it brings some of that negativity. You start to realize that there are spaces where it's not safe to talk about this. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. Yeah, but because having that thoughts of, you know, because there are so many times, Catherine, honestly, there are so many times that, you know, I was feeling quite discouraged, you know, with my work that when, you know, a lot of pushback and negative reaction. And there's nobody asked me to do this. I, I signed it out myself to do that so I can live anytime, really. But again, I I always remember what was my first heart you know why did I start it that one I want to do this because I know if I don't do it who else is going to do it there might be somebody else that's even better but we can't ask a bit somebody else before we ask ourselves first so we really need to be a role model ourselves that's why I always say it to my children so at home this is what I do if I don't like something if they don't, I've not I've not tried something like for example food I would always say that okay I'll try it first then everybody try so we we can't say that oh everybody is going to try this but I'm not trying it isn't it we are not the role model then to mm. to, to 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 be there for other people and what do you recognize then Hazel as being your your strengths uh, what do you recognize as being your autistic strengths and and how how do you nurture them I think one of the cool things about being autistic is that I have some pretty unique strengths. For example, um, I am super, super detail-orientated and I have great memories. Before I knew that I was autistic, I just thought everyone had these traits, you know, I just... <laughs> but now I realise they are actually... that because I'm, I'm different. So, for example... Um, I am really good at spotting mistakes. It's just natural. It's not that I want to look for the mistake in the paragraph or, you know, anything. It's just natural. So I guess that's just one of my strengths. <laughs> and of course, you know, being, being such detail-orientated can sometimes make me 
looks like I'm really fussy, you know, and and or very particular. I pick up mistake, but not everybody likes it. But you know, sometimes in the yeah, there's just a lot of mis- a lot of mistake to be spotted. I think. And you <laughs> so, talking yeah. about your unique cognitive style because we all have a unique cognitive style. But you're talking here about having a really great memory. Yes. Yes. Also, yes. I. I. You know, that's. I. I remember most things that what people have been said to me. Yes. And I. I didn't know. I. Yeah, a lot of people that's younger than me. But then when we like 10 years later, when we have that sit together again, I remember what they said exactly before. And people, most people has already forgotten them. And also thinking back a few years ago, I, I um organized a few successful big events, uh, not just for the autism community, also for the Chinese community, like Chinese New Year or some other events that actually very big, that attract like thousands of audience and I have to utilize hundreds of volunteers. I remember what I have said to other people and because of the detail orientated of that uniqueness that I can put everything together in very short time and it turned out a very, very successful event. Many people saw me as capable, you know, people always comment, oh, you are very capable, you know, but in reality, I think, it was actually my autism superpower. <laughs> it is that strand that I have because that I'm autistic, that pay attention to details and you remember all details and that has made the entire event such a great success. Mm. Yeah. And, and what about struggles then? Because I can't talk about strengths without struggles because this is this is about, you know, being being real on this podcast. This is about saying that you know, whilst you have these incredible strengths, that there are things that you also struggle with, incredibly struggle with. What would you, yes. what would you say are some of those struggles that you that you experience, Hazel, that you have experienced? I think, to be honest, I I struggle with people. Yeah, I I don't mind work, you know, and I but I find it overwhelming and confusing when I'm surrounded by. Um, working with too many people I I tend to um, do my best work when I have control over a project or when I'm working with a close-knit team however it's really draining when there's a lot of time wasted energy to 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 work with people just to deal with some other things but not related to work Um, I remember some of the challenges that I would say is you sometimes when you work with people, if people don't like it or people they don't get onto your style, you know, they will start talking things behind your back or start criticize you being some things that you don't even understand, you know. And over the times that I had that internalized um to that, that I almost feel like, am I such a kind of a bad person like what other people were saying? So I think... There was a time that I've been through that I feel like I need to fix myself. I need to fix myself in order for me to fit in to a team. People would say that, oh, you need to be able to work with a team so that, you know, because we live in a world that, you know, we're working with other people. But learning that I'm an autistic, that has helped me to realize that my differences are just as part of who I am. There's nothing wrong with it, you know. Mm. I need to, and I do not need to change in order to be worthy of, to be in part of your your team because I know my strength and 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 I I do not have to put myself in the situation where I continue to struggle. So I I then also on top of that, I also struggle with sensory overload and anxiety. Sometimes this thing, this this will make it very challenging to me to handle certain situation and complete tasks when I feel overwhelmed, particularly in unfamiliar setting. So um, because I know that I'm usually quite efficient and I know I can focus it for a long period of time to complete tasks. But when I'm anxious or confused, I can become dysfunctional and almost underperform. Um mm. Yeah, and that is some. Yeah, that is that is the situation that I would um, try to avoid 
you know, ever since that I know how I will, you know, how I am when I know myself better. Yeah. Yeah, so and, just, how, and how you work, the environments in which you thrive in. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you you talked about one of the struggles that goes with your strengths is people. But you have created a, a community for the autistic community in the UK. But you're at the head of that community, aren't you? You're the one leading it. You're the one with the autonomy there. You're the one with the bringing all of this attention to detail and the ideas that you have. So I'm interested to understand from you, Hazel, in in creating this organisation that you've created and this community that you have nurtured, what adaptations and adjustments have you had to make them with this new knowledge about yourself to work in an environment that feels enabling as opposed to disabling? I mentioned about, you know, having, I used to having different masks, to wear at different times. I, I still do. I still do. When I need to go to maybe to speak to the health board or someone important, I would still to put on some mask that to make sure that, you know, I can speak out, you know, in a professional way, etc. But one thing that has helped me to take off my mask for most of the time is being more open and honest about my needs with the people that are in my life. So, for example, that I shared earlier, in my own family, you know, I, I have already started able to talk to my children, share it with my children, that my struggles and my difficulties. This is something that I've not do it when they were younger or in the past. So now I shared it with my children that I, I told them that, you know, mommy gets overwhelmed, you know, when it's too noisy or when the house is too messy. My my children and my husband, they are they are great at respecting each other needs because they see how you know how I do it to them and how I do it to other people I guess in the past I haven't shared my difficulties so that they haven't got that opportunity to do it so I think at home you know I learned that to not to wear any mask however outside home there are still people that don't understand sometimes thinking that you know me being myself sometimes when I talk about my difficulties that you know actually she's making an excuses mm. so it's it's hard the, the world they are so much need to be changed people need to really learning how to respect one another differences isn't it yeah <laughs> but but you talking about unmasking and these different masks that you have had to learn to wear at different times in different situations that is an exhausting way to live your life to have to because it you is. it's like you're code switching all the time between it different is. systems and it is Catherine, it is but I'm I'm doing it much lesser now in the past when I look back this you know I do it so much more than now so now I also sort out some some sensory accommodation so I'll wear like noise censoring headphones I avoid crowd places or social gatherings so there are a lot of events that people would think, oh, would be really good to go for networking, but I usually don't go. Now I would say no. I would say no more than before. So mm. I like to create a, 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 a more quiet environment for myself to work or to do things, you know. I, I tend to, I tend to, I try to, but not always successful, <laughs> not to overlook myself. But with social networking, I think I learned to say no very well now today than before. Yeah. And that's the hard thing, though, isn't it, to people who are listening to this, who might be at a very early stage in their journey of discovering who they are, is that even with a diagnosis, a diagnosis doesn't help doesn't give you the understanding about yourself. It gives you it gives you some some answers. But this whole journey that you have to then go on to rediscover who actually, who am I? And what do I find overwhelming in my environment? What feels too much? You're talking about too much noise, too much mess. I'm totally with you on that. That's, that's <laughs> you know, it is. And when you get to a point where you start to realize that actually, if I, if I now understand this about myself and I'm able to now say to the people around me, actually, this is a real struggle. And it's not just a struggle. It means I have to wear a mask. And if I have to wear a mask, it means that I'm my nervous system is constantly dysregulated. I'm ignoring my body and my needs for others. Yeah. And 
you've you've managed to do that in your home environment you've managed to to demask to to take off that mask and say these are the things that I struggle with but for many people they they're not even at the point who will be listening to this of being of even knowing what it is that they need and that's the hard thing isn't it that yeah. until you get to this point of this level of understanding but yeah as you were talking about this environment that you've been creating for yourself and adaptations and adjustments that you've been making you were talking about social networking but before we pressed record on this podcast today you were talking about podcasts you were saying there's been lots of podcasts that I've been asked to go on when I've I've said yes and then I've just decided I'm not going to do it and this is the first podcast that you've been on so what was an enabling factor for you to enable you to come on a podcast and tell your story that you've not been able to do before Actually, you know that, you know, we have been rescheduled this for how many times <laughs> and you have been so accommodating. I think I get a bit anxious. I get a bit anxious, firstly, because this is new. Secondly, this is about me, not about the work that, just about the work that I do. I've been to tally, I've been to a work ceremony where I need to do public speaking. I've been to radio, you know, all these places. But that was all about talking the, the group of people that I'm advocate advocates for and why is it important to advocate for um, this particular group of people. But this, again, because this podcast is about me and I feel a bit vulnerable about it. So in the past, there's a few podcasts that, you know, because podcast is, is I, don't, I don't see myself, um, English is not my first language, that's one thing. So... I am not 100% confident at um, speaking in English at the same time as talking about myself. And it's actually talking about something that I have not been openly talked about it before. And for you, Catherine, you will be a stranger to me. You know, they are not like someone, my old friend for 30 years. So, and with a lot of other people as well. And, but I think it was because of a few rescheduling. <laughs> <laughs> and you have been so accommodating and I have listened to some of your other podcasts I think yes this is the one that I'm going to do it and and because I know the the idea why you are doing this and I also mentioned that you know we we all need role models if I am not doing this it just keep relying on other people doing it you know I am the hypocrite myself here and I have I have been inspired before by many um, other women, and by listening to some of your podcasts, I feel inspired too. So I feel honored that you know, if here today you have invited me here, I I if I can share my story and I can be um, an inspiration for any any you know even just one person, that is something that I'm really willing to do. Yeah. And you absolutely will inspire many, many people by coming on and, and sharing your story. And I, and I don't underestimate the vulnerability and the courage that you have to um, tap into in order to do this. I remember before I started this podcast and and I, I was a bit like you, I thought, well, how on earth can I, I can't start a podcast and not share my story because or as you get into the realms then of, well, you're just creating spaces for everybody else, giving everybody else a voice, but you actually never share your voice. You never share your story. And um, and I remember calling my friend the, the day before the podcast went out. And I, I said to her, Helen, um, I said, I feel so nervous and so anxious. I feel physically sick at the thought that this this episode is going to go out and 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 I don't know how it's going to be received I don't know what people are going to think I don't know how it's going to impact my business I don't know if all that negativity that we talk about that we see what will happen and and I realized that you know that's what happens when you have to be courageous that's what happens and I called I called my first episode being brave because I felt like I had to be really brave to to put something out there that was so vulnerable that people might view me in a different way after. But I had to get to a level of acceptance to say, well, if I'm going to do this and I'm and I'm going to try and commit like you're doing to deconstructing this narrative and tackling stigma, then we've got to lead by example. But I don't underestimate, Hazel, 
you know the difficulty in doing that so thank you for for showing up today and thank you for for coming on and and letting us shine a light on your story and I wonder if you can think back to an autistic experience that you might have had as a child something that you experienced in your childhood that now that you have this knowledge and understanding about yourself yeah that you can say yeah this is a this is an autistic experience yes (laughs) you know when I was a child I have this reflection before already so when I look at this yeah I remember when I was child, I used to be very organized. I'm still am in a certain way. <laughs> I I like to collect things. It's not like what we 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 know today. You know, people always think, oh, autistic boy, they like trays, they like to light out trays, you know, those kind of things. It's not. I I collect things, anything, and then organize them um, in the way that I like them to be. So objects like stationery or um marks at home that I would get really upset with if anyone touched them or moved them out of the place and I would definitely put them back to the way that I think they should be I used to collect um, coca-cola bottles you know coke mm-hmm. <laughs> I had more than 2,000 of different designs of coke and I, I just love that I was really fascinated I can look at them all day one after another and then repeat it and look at it again. The, the other important piece when I look at to my childhood is that I, I never feel quite fit in. But, you know, as a young little girl, I do not understand why, you know. I, I, I knew that i I not quite fit in. A lot of girls, they like to dance. They join um dancing club. So I joined too. But I always feel a bit clumsy and over dancing, you know. But I just do it because everybody was doing it. And a lot of people, they like listening to pop song and pop music. And I just did not know why. I have no interest at all. I found them too noisy. Why would people want to listen to music like that? I have never liked, you know, any pop music. I could not remember any songs they play or any of the names of the singers. So I don't feel quite free in every time when they have all this topic and conversation that I I've never drawn to, you know, I don't know any celebrities to be honest, except for Michael Jackson. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think I feel quite lonely. Uh, looking back, I there was, even though I was just a little girl, I, I do feel quite lonely. And I thought at that time, I thought because I was the youngest at home, where my other siblings are way much older than me. But now, you know, having lived half of my life in the UK, away from home in Malaysia. I love my family. You know, like I love my mom, my brothers and sister, but I, I really don't feel close to them. There's always um, like I feel a gap. There is a gap and, you know, difficult to communicate. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was started when since I, I, I was little, to be honest. Yeah, and that sense of loneliness, again, it's such a commonality in so many of our experiences. And again, something that, is an internalized experience so people don't necessarily see or hear these experiences about what it's like being an autistic girl growing up um, or navigating the world as an autistic woman and I I wonder Hazel if you could go back in time and give the younger version of Hazel a really compassionate message what would you want to say to her what did you need to hear growing up yeah um, I would tell my younger self that it's okay to be different and there's nothing wrong with me for experiencing the world in the unique way. I don't have to go with what the majority of girls likes. I would encourage her to seek out to people who accept and appreciate her for who she is and really be to be gentle with herself when things get overwhelming. Such a a powerful, compassionate message. It's given me goosebumps hearing that. I know we've talked, this has been about you, but I also, also part of you, Hazel, is is the work that you're doing and this community. So you founded the Chinese Autism Support Group in 2016, didn't you? When when you realised that there wasn't any support available, even nationally, for Chinese families managing um, autism. 
And since then, you've worked tirelessly to engage with this vulnerable group of people who were almost hiding themselves away due to the language barriers and the cultural stigma associated with autism. And the momentum has led you to set up the Chinese Autism Community Interest Company in 2022 to better support all Chinese families in need across the UK. So can you tell us a little bit more about the change that you're making then and leading around autism and and what you're advocating for and and the difference that you want your your organisation to make? Hmm. Right. Um, So, wow, you know... um... As a leading advocacy in the campaign against um, stigma associated with autism, my mission is really to raise that acceptance and understanding about autism. Along this journey, I always started a different project whenever I see the gap. So I, when I see the gap, I feel like it's important to fill that gap. Gradually, gradually, I'm hoping, you know, by um, filling all this gap that we can support every single individual that Chinese neurodivergence, which is very much at the moment that is hiding behind the wall, maybe in their kitchen, in their home, in, in a small room, that can access to the support they needed. Because when I realized there was such a lack of resources, I just thought, when I think of those individual, I just thought I couldn't be numb not to do anything. If this generation cannot be changed, then I'm hoping what we are doing now can be helpful for the next generation. So my long-term vision is to work with all the Chinese-speaking country. I am based in the UK. What I'm doing here is important because I understand I'm an immigrant myself. So I came to UK as a Chinese minority. So I understand the barriers of the fellow Chinese people they face. And I have got a neurodivergence family that I, you know, be quite proud of. I'm hoping to support other families that to be able to come up with that stigma, to be proud of who they are and, you know, who their children are as well. So I'm hoping from there, I can work with other Chinese speaking country um, to change the term of the autism in Chinese like I mentioned earlier, I believe mm-hmm. that is the root of the stigma because the translation of the term has given misconception of every single Chinese to think that it is a disease. And when you think of a disease, you think that that is contagious, that that led on to a lot of misconception. So through my work, I'm hoping to empower families to be knowledgeable in their caring role and to break down those cultural barriers that we inherited so ultimately, my goal is to create a more inclusive society where everyone can strive, regardless their um, immigration background, their ethnicity, or their neurodiversity. So a worldwide vision here. This isn't this isn't even just a UK vision. This is a worldwide vision that you you have for your organisation, and within that then you're you're a campaigner aren't you I mean you're not you're not just leading an organization you're campaigning because you are absolutely determined to bring all these voices and all these unknown stories together um to be heard and you do that don't you sit on a health board stakeholder group as a race representative you've been working for equal services you talked about the language support that the that you've been working on because it's generally not easy to access in many of those local service providers that you were talking about and all the cultural stigma surrounding disability in general and and all the kind of the unwillingness to to embrace difference has been a huge challenge to your work but another further challenge for you is is a lack of funding isn't it available to meet the needs of of this particular vulnerable group of people so I'm interested Hazel what what do you want to see change? I mean, what is your call to action out there in terms of, of making a difference? What, what do we need to change? Yeah, I, I believe that we need to move towards a world where every neurodivergence individual is understood and accepted 
and supported to reach and to be supported to to reach their full potential because there's so much potential in them. Right now, people are still far from knowing how to respect and accept each other differences. And I think the current system has is failing us. Like the example you mentioned it earlier. It took you how long? You know, 40 years, 50 years, some people that finally have that courage to wanting to, you know, to, to get to know themselves, you know, to embrace who they are. But the system at the moment, they are not there for us. They are not there for the people that, you know, wanted to have do the self-help. So I believe a lot of people have been asking why, you know, you people want to put on the label on autistic people and why bother to get a diagnosis. I think it's because that, you know, at a current, I believe that getting a diagnosis can be incredibly helpful for those who need it at the current time stands. We live in a world where the neurotypical majority holds all the powers and being different can be a real disadvantage. But ideally, ideally, I really would love to see a world where the label isn't necessary, where being neurodivergent is not seen as a problem, but as a unique way of being. To really move forward this vision, you know, the whole, we need a societal shift in how we view and treat neurodiverse individuals. At the moment, most people, including English education and culture, people have seen um, autism in a medical model. So we need to move away from that deficit-based medical model. So we don't, I don't, I don't use, I, I hardly, I don't like to use the term ASD, you know, autism spectrum disorder. When you use the term disorder, deficit, impairment, in a way, you know, you are downgraded a person. You mm -hmm. know, they straight away become a second class because it's a deficit-based medical model that focusing on the problem and on fixing and curing all those problems. However, we should be work towards more strength-based, like the social model that values and celebrate the uniqueness of individuals, the talent and the ability of autistic people. We definitely need to increase funding for research and services. For the work that I'm supporting, you know, sometimes people are just, if people that hold the power, they will justify their money by the quantity not the quality, they will see, oh, they often ask me, how many people are you supporting? So they're seeing a minority group, like maybe 10, 20 families, it's not worth putting that investment. So which is very, very sad. So we need to have that mindset, you know, brought out, you know, we need to increase funding to do all different research. And particularly those voices, if you hardly heard, that means there's some really deep rooted problems lying there that you really need people to look into and to support so that we can have more awareness campaign to reduce those stigma and discrimination continue to face by um, the minority group of people and by autistic individuals yeah and and that is a really valid call to action isn't it about about funding because so often like your experience here hazel you know you see this gap and you see this need and you're one autistic person, one neurodivergent person who has taken this upon herself to say, I need to do something about this. And you need support to do that. You need money to do that. You need people yes. to help you do that. And yes. there is so much out there, isn't there, in terms of research that's happening that wants to try and focus on the things that perhaps aren't helpful to us. And the autistic community are very clear about where they want to see that funding directed and where we want that research and how we move, as you say, to um, a much more social model that doesn't pathologize who we are and how yes. our minds work. Absolutely, yes. Because we, we are worth to be living in the environment that we can strive, you know, in a world that value and celebrates the diversity. Well, thank you so much for making the time in your schedule to come on. And I'm so glad that you persevered with me and that we got to today and we got, when we got to record this episode. Is there anything else you want to add, Hazel, before I stop record? Is there anything you want to say that you didn't say? 
Um, I'm hoping more people will when you next time, because when I talk about Chinese and autism, often people they people they don't feel related to because they might say, oh, I'm not Chinese. I'm not autistic, so there's nothing to do with me. But in fact, no, because there are many people out there who need your understanding and your support. By you coming to pay attention to this topic, that would definitely make a difference to the work that I'm campaigning for. Chinese people, they are not just those people behind the takeaway counters. You know, they are not just those students um, in the universities. There are many more people that on the street, they are probably asylum seekers, they are refugees, they are neurodivergents, they face a lot of um, additional barriers that usually you don't even know or you can think of. So by hearing what I'm saying, sharing with everybody today, I'm hoping, you know, with every single thing that you can do to help maybe or just reading, um, just go to browse the website that I've created for everybody. ChineseAutism.org.uk to understand a little bit more than you probably then will know that yourself that you know this area that you definitely can be contributing in for this course. Yeah, and it is a brilliant website. It's just launched, hasn't it? Very recently, um, a yes. revamped website. And there's so much information, so much resource on there. Um, and as you say, this is about being allies. This is about you know, breaking that that stigma about reducing our own biases and judgments that we have. And you're doing incredible work, Hazel. You really are. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Flames till you